I'll just say this. Learning something new is like vitamin A, B, C, D, E, F, and K for the brain. You want to, it is, it is a multivitamin experience, but you only get the, 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 the true benefit of it. If it is, forgive me, a little painful. Learning something new is an, ex your brain will absolutely reward you for accomplishing something, but it will reward you because it's not necessarily all that easy to do. So your cognitive engines, it's a little bit, I would think, uh, Pete, when you're doing a workout and you're doing, you know, you're going to get some muscle tearing if you're going to do some strengthening, but that little, those little micro pains, by golly, that tells you that you're doing something. So it's a, it's, you can see it the same way for the brain. Hi, I'm Pete McCall and welcome to this episode of the All About Fitness Podcast. You know, I didn't realize how influential my grandparents were until much later. Really, I had two grandfathers. They lived in different areas. They, they both had grown up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And the interesting thing is, years later, I found that the, but both my grandfathers knew each other before my parents were born. And then they, their lives went separate ways. My, my one grandfather, my maternal grandfather, lived in, in Arizona for a number of years. My paternal grandfather had stayed in Lincoln, Nebraska. And, and both lived till wow, the well into their 80s. You know, the interesting thing is my, my, my grandfather, Harold, my father's father, was very active. He got up, he walked every day. I remember being a young young boy, maybe eight, nine years old. He was visiting us one time. And he, I saw my grandfather do his push-ups, do his sit-ups, and he would go out and walk every day. And, and to me, I didn't really understand, why would you go out walking if you're not going anywhere? And he told me he went out and walked for exercise. You know, and he was somebody that was active every day. Not only that, but he had a huge network of friends. Back in Lincoln, Nebraska, he had a big, wide network of friends that he always stayed in touch with. You know, John, my, my maternal grandfather, when he was in Arizona, he was active as well. He had been, he had, he had owned his own H, uh, heating air conditioning company, an HVAC company. He was always a tinkerer. And one of the things that he did late in later years, and I did this with him one time, I think I was like 13 or 14 visiting with him. My grandfather would go out, my, my John would go out, my grandfather John would go out and he'd go dumpster diving a little bit. But what he was always looking for, he was looking for things that were broken, like blenders or hair dryers or, or things that he could fix. Because that was a way, and what he would do is he would get them, he would fix them up, and then he would donate them. He would give them to the Goodwill or somebody to sell them for money. Because you know, both my grandfathers came of age in the Depression. To them, you never threw anything away. And my grandfather, John, would go out and we'd do this, not every day. He would go out one or two times, you know, a couple times a month, I guess on trash days, and look for stuff that people would throw away they could fix and repair and give away. That was how he, he stayed active. Another way that he stayed active was that most mornings of the week, he would meet up with his friends at a local, uh, local McDonald's and they'd have coffee and hang out and talk and shoot the breeze. Now, the reason why I'm telling you about my grandfathers is it ties into the guests for this episode. This is really, just to let you know, I, I tried to book this, I, I, I booked this guest a long time ago. It took me a while to get on his schedule, but Dr. John Medina is a molecular biologist at the University of Washington. He's written, I've read his books. They are great books. If you want to understand how the brain works, you're, number one, you're going to learn, learn it today listening to the podcast. But number two, buy one of his books. He has, ten, he has brain rules. He has brain rules for babies and he has brain rules for aging well. And that's really what I want to speak to Dr. Medina about today. His, brain, his latest book, Brain Rules for Aging Well, goes into what we need to do to maintain, to maintain our brain function well into our later years. And looking back on it, looking back on both my grandfathers, John and Harold, both did the right thing. Harold exercised almost every day. 
John stayed active by teaching himself new things, by learning how to fix things and repair things. And both were very social. What you're going to hear today with Dr. Medina is the ways that our brain functions as we age and what we can do to improve our brain function as we age. If you want to learn how your brain works, if you want to learn what you can do to maintain your cognitive development and to maintain your brain function well into your later years, you are going to get a lot out of my conversation today with Dr. John Medina. And I strongly recommend that if you really want to learn, I gave each one of my parents, no joke, I gave each one of my parents brain rules for aging well for Christmas, give, give it to them as Christmas gifts this past year. Because I want my parents to last, yeah, stay on this earth a little bit longer. And I figured that was the best way to do it. And before I get into the interview with John, I really, if you want to support the podcast, I highly recommend that you pick up one of the workouts that I put it together. I've developed three eight-week pro- workout programs. Dumbbell strength training, kettlebell conditioning, and functional core training. Each one of these programs, not only do you get the workout, but you get a core workout, you get a core mobility workout, you get metabolic conditioning tips. You get a lot of information in the eight-week program. It's almost like getting three programs in one. Not only will the programs make you fitter, make you stronger, but I wrote them specifically using some of the science we're going to talk about today and how exercise can slow down the aging process. And that's what I am, folks. I'm an exercise. I'm a research geek for exercise. So anytime I put a program together, there's a lot of research that goes into it. There's information down below in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast but you don't want to buy a program, all I'm going to ask you to do is do a quick review. Give us a five-star rating. Boom. Done. Appreciate it. Thank you. Now let's get started with this fascinating conversation about how our brain functions and what we can do to optimize our brain function as we go through the aging process with Dr. John Medina. When we look at the brain, what do you think most people you know, are, discri- are surprised to learn about the role? I mean, we all know the brain's important, right? I mean, that kind of goes without saying, but what do you think is the one thing that with your students or when you, when you do a lecture, you, you speak with somebody, they go, oh my, I didn't realize it played this role. Right, right. Well, probably the single most surprising thing, if we, let's stay with the uh, theme of visual perception for a second, uh, of how profoundly active hallucinations play in the normal perception of the, of the visual field. And I perhaps can give an example of this. The, uh, uh, um, when you look at something, a lot of people think that the brain is simply a good videotape recorder and that if you have a good visual memory, you hit the playback head and all of a sudden the thing uh, unspools itself and you have filmed it. And nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, if I were to give a metaphor for what the brain is doing when it is looking at the visual field, the proper metaphor would probably be food processor. Because when pieces of information come into your head, your brain immediately separates it into component parts, like a food processor uh, blending things. The straight lines are separate from the curved lines and are stored in a different area of the brain. Color, various types of colors are stored in different areas of the brain. If the object is in motion, the existential fact of that motion is stored in a different place in the brain. And it's just kind of spattered all the inside of the skull. A lot of people don't really understand how profoundly deconstructive visual processing is. And then when you've deconstructed it with your osterizer, now you're going to have to put it back together. And as you reassemble it, because it's going to be at the reassembly where you're actually going to get the visual processing, your brain will make commentary about what it thinks it's seeing. And if it's in the visual field, it sees something that shouldn't be there. The brain thinks it shouldn't be there. Your brain 
brain is very willing to subtract the information and keep it away. You might be familiar with the old gorilla experiment in the basketballs. You're yeah. With yeah. Yeah. Where, where, where other people can see the gorilla in the, in with the, in the picture. Yeah. Well, yeah, for, for, the, for your audiences that haven't seen this before, it's a, the original clip, I think it was about three minutes, and it's a basketball scrimmage where you've got white T-shirts and black T-shirts, and they're just throwing the basketball around. And your job is, as a, if, you're, if you're a professor giving this to the student, you, the job of the student is to count the number of times, say, the guys in the white T-shirt uh, actually caught the ball. So you've got a bookkeeping job. Three minutes goes by, and then when you're done, you then you stop the video and you ask the class, class, did you see anything weird? And about 80% of the class will say, no, we didn't see anything weird. 10% are really uneasy, and the other 10% are laughing their head off. <laughs> and the reason why is that right about in the middle of the clip, a man in a fake gorilla suit comes on stage front waves at everybody, and then walks off. And you can ask the question, why did 80% of the class not see that? It's called attentional blindness. Well, one of the reasons why it does that is that hairy, hairy gorillas are not supposed to be in a basketball scrimmage. And your brain knows this. So what your brain will do is it will take a look and see that the gorilla suit is being perceived. There's actual photic exposure. You can see it. But the brain says, nah, it's not supposed to be there. So it, like a Photoshop editor from hell, will actually uh, scoop that uh, gorilla suit and eject it from the visual field, leading to the great principle, you do not see with your eyes. You see with your mind. No, that's that's fascinating because I, I think that gets into the mindset of just like it's all stored information, right? We store information and we recall just and then I'm you know, thinking back, I think to your original brain rules book is uh -huh. that we, we can kind of call back our brains like a hard drive. So we'll call back the files that make most sense to us in each situation that we're in. Am I, am I right about that? That's exactly right. You don't see what's out there. You see what you expect is supposed to be out there and then allow that. That's why we call this active hallucination. Uh, it, but it's hallucination with a formal definition because the information that's coming into your eyes is upside down. It's backwards. There's two of them because there's two images, one for each eye. And uh, there's a big hole in it that we call the blind spot. Somewhere in that mix, after that austerizer has separated out the colors from the lines from the fact of motion, you have to not only reassemble that information, you have to fill in that information with things that aren't there. You're going to fill in that blind spot. You're going to flip the image over. You're going to invert the image. And finally, you're going to take the two separate images, combine them together in an interpolating algorithm that we have almost no understanding of so that we can see depth perception. And then the brain will allow you to see. We call this formally, the gathering of the information is called bottom-up processing. And the Photoshop editing and filling in and the hallucinations and all that is called top-down processing. And only when the top-down processor is finished with what the bottom-up gave it, can you see anything. And see, I mean, this is fascinating. For listeners, you know, you do such a great job in, in, your, in your books, John, of laying out the information. You're a great storyteller. That's why I really appreciate about the way that, that your books are written is they make these principles very easy to understand. And, and you know, I would love to, I can see why you're probably a very popular professor there at UW because I'm sure your students love the way you, you, you deliver the information. Now I want to shift gears a little bit because when we first booked, when, we, when I first reached out to, to you about, about coming on the podcast, 
it was before the era that we're in now. And, and now we're, we're, we're recording this in early April. Everybody's having to live with the, the current reality of social distancing. Sure. And one of the things that you write about quite a bit in Brain Rules for Aging Well, one of the big components of our aging brain is a social brain. Uh, and, yes. and how important is a real life social network to our brain health at any age? You know, how important yeah. is it to have these real life interactions? Sure, sure. Well, it's extremely important. And there's two components to this with this uh, COVID-19 story. Uh, one of them I talk a little bit about in Brain Rules for Aging, but really uh, uh, do more thorough treatment in Brain Rules, is the fact that COVID-19 is a perfect storm. When we're feeling stressed about something, it's actually not the stress that we respond to. Uh, aversive stimuli happen to us all the time. That's not what gets us. What gets us and what hurts the brain is the ability to feel in control or out of control mm. of the aversive stimulus. The more out of control you feel, and out of control is measured in two ways. Number one, the frequency of how bad this is. And number two, the severity of how bad things are once it arrives at your doorstep. If, the more out of control you feel, the more likely you are to slip into a depression or an anxiety disorder or just general uh, 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 changes in mood that can actually cause brain damage. COVID-19 is the perfect storm for this because you can't control the frequency of the aversive stimulus. You have no idea when you walk out the door if you're going to get this or not. And number two, you can't control the severity of it. There are certain uh, 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 predictors of immunocompromised or an aging, uh, an aging body that, mean, that puts you at greater risk for a, uh, uh, a lethal event. Nonetheless, even young people get this and can get the, and get very sick with it. So you can't control the severity. That stress, Pete, is profoundly in a lot of people's heads when they're thinking now just in general social life. The only way out of getting rid of those types of depression is to have lots of interactions with lots of friends. And now we complete the, so the perfect storm circle because you can't go out and see your friends right now. You know, I'm up here in Seattle, but there's a ton of social distancing. We've been at it for almost two weeks. But the very thing that would allow us to not get depressed as a result of the stress is denied to us psychologically, simply because we have to keep the distance from each other so that we can get over this thing as quickly as possible. Quite a perfect storm there. Well, and, and this is a fascinating thing because you're seeing like overnight when all the health clubs closed, Everybody in my industry, although someone's out of work, you know, what yeah. we do, you know, part of what fitness is and group fitness is, I would argue that especially the older people get or as people mature, one yeah. of the most important benefits of going to a gym or a group fitness class is the cognitive social aspect, not just the health aspect, but the cognitive social, you're with other people and like-minded individuals. And I actually have a friend up in Seattle of all places who uh -huh. she is actually, I think right now is recording this, is teaching by herself in a studio with a robot camera following her around. <laughs> and, you know, everybody, you know, her regular student, the people who come to her studio class are all on whatever platform they're using, yeah. taking class with her. Sure. Can, can this sort of, now that we're doing everything via FaceTime and Skype and Zoom, can yeah. this sort of online social interaction, does that, is that a replacement or is that kind of like a, a just a Band-Aid for real life social interaction? Well, it, it, I'll just say it's a poor substitute for face-to-face, -face, I guess would be the way to say it. But it has benefits. So I can be both negative and positive in my responses to your very good question. So allow me to, let's start with the negative and then we'll go right to the positive. Sure. Uh, 
Um, the negative is this. The human brain loves to look at uh, uh, social information primarily inside someone's face. Mm -hmm. But the human brain is so sensitive that it can actually detect changes, mi micro pressure changes between two people as they're talking. Uh, it, it looks at the smells. It can see various angles. There's a lot of light that's bouncing off somebody's, somebody's body. You can get the uh, 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 nonverbal information a whole lot. When you're just sitting there on a screen Skyping, you're generally seeing somebody's head in two flat dimensions. So it's impoverished. It's not as good as the face-to-face -face interaction. No question about it. So that's the negative. Now to some positive. Work has been done. The social isolation that a lot of us who are fit and, are, and are, have been in culture for a long time, we're not familiar with it. But by golly, Pete, a lot of people in the elderly community are familiar with it. They're no longer ambulatory. People don't see them very often. If they're going to have any interactions at all, it's probably going to be screen-based. That population is more familiar with the social distancing than any of the younger populations, so you can actually study how they interact and what things help them and what things don't. And here's a very interesting piece of data. Uh, if you just do, and this was done over a six-week period, uh, a, a group of essentially shut-in uh, lonely seniors were given uh, um, uh, a video chat device and were told to be on it for 30 minutes a day for six weeks, and the controls didn't have anything like that. Uh, they did a pre-post on a cognitive gadget called executive function, which you may be familiar with. Executive function is the ability to get things done. It's got two components to it. One of them is cognitive uh, uh, regulation. If you can focus well, defocus, and then refocus again, you generally have good executive function. It also is related to impulse control, like anger management and feelings of being moodiness or whatnot. If you've got high executive function, uh, generally you're less moody and you, generally you're happier. And so the question was asked was, with these shut-in seniors, if you give them a video chat device and then have them at it for six weeks, can you get a noticeable change in their brain, even though all they've got is the digital, the Skyping, the, a, a flat two-dimensional screen-based image? The answer is yes. You get whopping changes in executive function as long as seniors were deliberate with it. So the council seems to be, Pete, uh, it's not as good, you know, it is negative, it's not as good as face-to-face, -face, but it's not zero to be on the screen. And in the case of the experiment, the fact that you did it deliberately with people over a defined period of time for a while tells me that if you want to survive the social distancing that we're facing, uh, get a bunch of screen buddies and regularly interact with them on a daily, I'd argue sometimes hourly basis to keep some of the, the bad stuff of desocializing away. Well, I had another friend, it's funny you say that, because I had another, another friend telling me that she was making dinner with a bunch of her friends where they were all making dinner together. Yeah. <laughs> I think it turned more into a wine, uh, a wine uh, chat, <laughs> actual dinner. But what they had done, and because they couldn't get together, you know, this is a group that normally gets together being very social. Sure. And so they did it via social distancing. Yeah. No, that, that, I'm glad you mentioned that in that study, because that was one of the things that, you know, as you're speaking, I, I wanted to bring up. Sure. You know, we talked a little bit about, about stress. And looking at this, because the way, and I just, I just interviewed last week, I interviewed an operational psychologist um, from the Army, a military operational psychologist, and a, a member of the Special Forces, um, Special Operations teams, and we were talking like how they get through stress. And one of the things they said was be able to compartmentalize and look at the, you know, plan your day out to like, what can you control and what can you affect right away? 
how important is it for the cognitive function of the brain in order to be able to focus on the positive aspect of that? Because it's very easy for us to be very overwhelmed, but how important is it to focus on, I can control this, or I can control the next two or three hours in terms of just overall, you know, brain function and cognitive development? Yeah. Well, it's, you can think of it as kind of a three-step process. It's the, this isn't a therapy, but it's a gateway to uh, a therapeutic understanding. Um, uh, because control is the issue and not the icky, the icky is not the issue. It's the control over it. Uh, what I, the three step, the first step in this three-step process is you write down everything that bugs you. Just write it down. All the stuff that is, that is kind of interfering with your day. It could be a major interference, minor interference, but it bugs you. Step number two, you rate what you just wrote down on a one to 10 scale about how in control or out of control you feel. A 10 might be completely out of control. You feel, this has got you. This is a bear coming at you. Nothing you can do. Other stressors might rate more, you know, you might downgrade. That might be more like a five or even a one. And you take a look at that list. And then it's, so step number two is the rating. Step number three is then for those things where you can, particularly if you've got a couple of tens, do your best to re-exert control over the situation. Rather than trying to get rid of the aversive stimulus, figure out what you need to control it. And there's a codicil to this, because you can do that with the stuff for which you feel out of control, but you're going to have the most success if you deal in the immediate with things you can feel like you can control almost immediately as a first response. So you would, you would have your list, and you've got your 10s, and you've got your 1s. You're going to be focusing on the 10s, but you might start with the 1s simply to give yourself some confidence. So it's a little bit like what your special forces people were saying when they're looking around and saying, well, what can I do? What can control I can exert? That's simply step number three in this protocol. Well, and, I, and see, I think that's important for people to understand because – not that everybody I expect to be, you know, in a military mindset, but those are individuals that are trained to deal with the highest levels of stress possible. Sure. And so I think understanding kind of their process could really help people kind of like go, okay, if somebody can use this to get through, you know, a firefight in Afghanistan, I can use this to get through my day trying to homeschool two elementary school kids. And I don't mean to make light of the fact, but it just is, this is a new stressor because now all of a sudden, you know, your kids aren't in school and, and parents aren't at work and they have to go, oh my goodness, I have to figure out how to homeschool my kids. And that just, it's, it's a shifting of gears. And part of it I like is the elasticity of the brain. How important is it to be able to, be able to do different things and new things? Because my understanding is, the more novel things and more novel kind of new approaches we can take is actually like one is one form of exercise for the brain. Kind of like, and then I'm going to refer to, you have a, a chapter in, or a, a part in, in, in aging well on game playing. And so I kind of look at trying to figure out how to homeschool my kids as kind of like game playing. So I got to game play the scenario in order to be able to get them to work effectively. So what, sure. what, what role does that elasticity and that kind of game playing have to do with, with cognitive development? Well, uh, uh in terms of things that are new, um, one of the ways that you can tell, I'll just say this, learning something new is like vitamin A, B, C, D, E, F, and K for the brain. <laughs> you want to, it is, it is a multivitamin experience, but you only get the, 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 the true benefit of it if it is, forgive me, a little painful. <laughs> learning something new is an ex- your brain will absolutely reward you for accomplishing something but it will reward you because it's not necessarily all that easy to do mm-hmm. so your cognitive engines it's a little bit i would think uh, Pete, when you're doing a workout 
and you're doing, you know, you're gonna get some muscle tearing if you're gonna do some strengthening. But that little, those little micro pains, by golly, that tells you that you're doing something. So it's a, it's you can see it the same way for the brain. Well, now, once the brain has, has gotten something new, there is an important uh, component, particularly if we stay with a homeschooling parent in a new situation that probably should be addressed because there the new is painful and not necessarily resolving. Um, one, I have become over the years increasingly impressed with the depth of the evidence-based and peer-reviewed uh, uh, framework of John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness mm-hmm. training. Okay. And I talk about that, I think, in, in uh, Brain Rules for Aging Well. Um, one of the reasons why I'm bringing this, this up is that if you really go down the rabbit hole with true mindfulness, now it's not meditation. There's a lot of meditation styles out there that either haven't been tested or have been tested and found not to work. But John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness training, and there's an eight-week course you can take. He's, uh, John Teasdale, who was a colleague of his for a long time, uh, uh, wrote a book about the research that they did. And then uh, it's a, called the Mindful Way Workbook, a series, an eight-week course for you to follow, too. This will be new, so it'll be a little painful. But it is one of the most effective evidence-based behavioral suites against the anxiety that a lot of parents will feel without having a job and having to homeschool that exists. So I make the suggestion that, for sure, learning is good, and you'll learn a whole lot of this, but the evidence-based approaches to mindfulness is one of the sure, the, the strongest ways to beat back the anxiety and panic that a lot of people are feeling when they see the stock market crash and they see uh, uh, the Marcellus uh, 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 make, uh, patriarch die, uh, and we'll see lots of stress that comes with a, you know, a plague-like infection. The best thing you can do is mindfulness training. Well, and the way I, and that's a great thing to, to kind of be reminded of, because one thing I'm trying to, trying to hold on to with everything else kind of go to, you know, heck in a handbasket is yeah. I'm just trying to hold on to opportunities. I have more time with my kids right now. Yeah. And, you know, I just adopted, you know, I just adopted a dog because I'm like, hey, I'm not, tra- <laughs> you know, I'm not traveling right now. And, and I was reading about the social benefits of having a pet. And I'm like, you know what, I'm not traveling. You know, the kids aren't, we're not, you know, the kids aren't being socially interactive with other, you know, their peers. So yeah. why not get a dog right now and kind of have that add in there. And and that kind of brings to mind, you know, one of the things that you, t- you write about a lot is happiness. Yes. And, I, I, and I forgot, it's been a few years since I've owned a dog and I'm a fan of, it's my third bulldog I've owned, English bulldog. Oh my goodness. Congratulations, Pete. And, and thank you. And, and it's just like, but it, it brings me even cleaning up the mess as I'm house training her. There's yeah. a certain happiness there of like, okay, great. I have a four legged friend again. How important is it to find happiness as we, you know, as we go through our daily lives and how does that, how does that help our brain? Well, you have given a great example of a very powerful principle in the cognitive neurosciences. Uh, what your happiness is greatly accelerated if you are constantly thinking of somebody else rather than your own problems. We sometimes call it decentering behavior. And what I mean by that is that you, you, if you are the center of your universe, but all of a sudden you have to pick up after a dog, the dog is now the center for a while. <laughs> yeah. The same thing is true with a baby. When you first have a baby, you know, yeah. you want to be the center of your universe, but you know, Junior's crying at three o'clock in the morning and you got to go comfort him. That's going to get you off your throne in a really big fashion. I, I'd say for both pet owners and for parents, you know, these are these are amateur sports, but man, they are not for uh, uh, the faint of heart. <laughs> but the, the principle here is really sound and you illustrate it really well. 
the more you get out of your own experiences and become concerned with other people, the more likely you are to resist the power that isolation can uh, can exert over you, particularly related to depression and anxiety. The more you give to other people, the um, Marty Seligman is a, a, a very famous uh, uh, psychologist in my world at the University of Pennsylvania. He's very famous for saying, "You ought, everybody ought to go out there and work for a charity of some kind, particularly if you get depressed, because that will allow you to get inside other people's experience in such a fashion that at the end of the day, you might be exhausted, but you're not exhausted with your own problems. You're exhausted by helping other people. That is a powerful, uh, has exerts powerful effects on the brain. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's good to hear that. And that, that kind of falls in line with, with other things I've heard about, you know, a lot of people say volunteer, you know, get out if you need to, you yeah. know, kind of break out of a funk, find an opportunity to volunteer. Right. And, you know, one thing I want to ask now, kind of along the same lines, one, one thing I liked, again, you going back to your style of writing, you use an analogy of Norman Lear, you know, in terms of like having a certain like positive or, or happiness, uh, you know, mindset, what yeah. can Norman Lear teach us about kind of keeping a, keeping a, a very kind of positive mindset in our lives? Well, not just Norman Lear, but also Carl Reiner, who's also in his 90s, and Dick Van Dyke, also in his 90s. All of those guys, you know, they're, if you've ever seen videos of these, they're still extraordinarily active. They're still creative. They're still doing lots of things. One of the uh, um, uh, lessons that I have learned by looking at all three of those those men, they have an extraordinary love of ideas, when you have a love of ideas, you're no longer thinking about yourself. It's, again, the, kind of a decentering thing. And to me, it, the lesson of Norman Lear is the lesson of Pete going out and buying a dog. It's not different. <laughs> uh, they, have, they certainly have had physical exercise be a large part of their life. Uh, in the case of Dick Van Dyke, he's a deep believer, as am I, in ritualized movement, so dancing. The, uh, and he's been, of course, was a professional dancer for many, many years. They all have a fluid freedom of movement. But the biggest thing that they will tell you is that they're so, when you are writing a joke, you're thinking about if somebody else is going to laugh at it or not. That's a very decentering thing to do. So they have all of those in common that they have a love of ideas, which is why in the book Brain Rules for Aging Well, I tell everybody that if they really want to have cognitive candy for the brain, they need to get their butts back in school and they need to start learning a bunch of stuff. Get back into the world of ideas so that uh, the experiences outside themselves, they can re-inaugurate the gee whiz that you know they had as children. Now they can have it as uh, older adults and get the same benefit. That's the lesson to me of Norman Lear and also of Carl Reiner and Dick Van Dyke. Well, and that and see, I thought that was such a powerful you know that that story that you you share in the book. I thought was so powerful because you see these people function at a high level well into yeah. their later years. Yeah. And especially like you referenced earlier, the stock market crash. I think a lot of us are planning to have to do that for a little while. You know? <laughs> you know? So it's not a bad idea. You know, now, that, to switch gears, and obviously this is a podcast about fitness, where I, where I, talk, where I talk a lot about fitness. Sure. And you reference exercise a couple of times. Yes. How important is exercise in brain health? Because a lot of people have the stereotype, John, of the dumb jock or the dumb gym sure. guy. Sure. But reality, when you look at, at, at the research, when you look at the evidence, it is anything but the truth that exercise, strength training, cardio exercise is yeah. really just fodder for the brain in terms of development. What role does exercise play? 
Oh my gosh, this is such a wonderful and deep story, Pete. Um, usually in my, in my field, uh, as a molecular biologist, I'm a cognitive neuroscientist, there will be people that will work on behavior, and then there'll be people that will work on the cells of the brain, say, and then there'll be people like me who work on the genes inside those cells. And those three pots of academic pursuit don't always coalesce with each other. They don't talk to each other. They often are coordinated. They often don't even tell the same story because we're in the beginning stages of our understanding. What I just said is not true of exercise. The behavioral work, the cellular work, and the molecular work of particularly aerobic exercise, I think has been studied the strongest, has a single very powerful story to tell us. So if we start with the behavioral work, one of the best things I can say to uh, groups is that the dumb jock is the opposite of truth. In the more you exercise, the greater your executive function, that thing we were talking about earlier, becomes, um, particularly in both the ability to focus and in the emotional regulation, the two great peers of executive function, uh, the more you aerobically exercise, the higher your executive function scores go. And there's been so much work on this. It isn't just correlative. They actually have taken sedentary people, measured their executive function, and then had them do a 10-week strenuous aerobic uh, uh, program, and at the end, measure their executive function again. And by golly, it's just gone, gone through the roof. So the behavioral story is great. There's also a cellular story. If you take a look at the people that are exercising in very particular areas of the brain, particularly the hippocampus, and the dentate gyrus, this whole area that is involved in memory and processing. And actually, it's also involved in understanding where you are physically in three space. Hippocampus is an extremely vital part of, of our brains. Um, the more you exercise, the more you vascularize those areas. The greater the blood vessels go in and penetrate into those tissues. And that's extremely important because the hippocampus is the only place in the brain where you actually can get cells to reproduce. Most everything else in the brain, as soon as you're born, you've got all the cells you're ever going to get. That is not true of the hippocampus. There are still active stem cells, is what we call them, in the hippocampus, which are growing and can respond to, by golly, exercise. You want more blood vessels in a particular region anyway, for the most part, because as you know, and as you teach, Pete, uh, uh, blood provides nutrients to a given tissue, and it also acts as the garbage collector and pulls away toxic, uh, toxic wastes. So the more you can vascularize a particular region, the healthier that region can become. That's the cellular story. Then finally, you go over into what is more my world, the molecular story, and you find the same powerful goodness with particularly aerobic exercise, though strengthening exercise does, does too. I think the aerobic story is probably a little more mature. But what you can show is that we can understand why this works. There is a, a brain chemical called brain-derived neurotrophic factor. I, in the book, I describe it as miracle grow for the brain. It is a protein which is encoded by a gene. And the more you exercise, the more that gene becomes active and the more amount of BDNF you have, the more miracle grow you get in specific regions of the brain. And there's another uh, chemical called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. Uh, you don't... <laughs> We don't have to get into the woods with this, but it is the siren call. It is the chemical that coaxes blood vessels to come over to a particular area of, of tissue and vascularize it. 
And the more you exercise, the more you increase VEGF in local areas of the brain producing health. So here you've got it, Pete. You've got a behavioral story with executive function. You've got a cellular story with the vascular work. And you've got a molecular story, which seems to be able to explain both of those. Man, and all you've got to do, even if you're sedentary, is 150 minutes of moderate aerobic activity in a seven-day period. JAMA is right, necessary and sufficient to get a lot of the benefits. Well, and it's so funny, as you're, as you're saying this, John, I, if you don't mind me asking, are you a Seahawks fan since you're up in Seattle? Are you an NFL fan? <laughs> I have a mixed relationship as a brain scientist with the NFL. And here's my mix. I love football, okay? Yeah. I was a wide receiver in high school. I enjoy, uh, there, there are times when I am not looking at a group of athletes, I'm looking at poetry. <laughs> I'm a fan, okay? Yeah. I, love, I, I love it when our quarterback, you know, he's the best improviser since Fran Tarkenton, and I've been watching the NFL a long time, so there are probably people in your audience who knows who Fran Tarkenton was, the scrambling man. Uh, uh, Wilson is just like Tarkenton. Uh, he used to work for University of Minnesota, or University of Minnesota, sorry, Minnesota Vikings. So I have a love for it. I also have a hate for it. Yeah. It is increasingly clear that this 100% injury sport, the biggest injuries are something you can't see for almost 20 years. But the well, CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, that can occur as a direct result of blunt force trauma to the head is something that is a, uh, it's, I, I think of it as a scorpion. The stinger is at the end. You don't see it when they're in, 20, in their 20s and 30s. But even though the average NFL career is only three years in length, the risk for CTE skyrockets as a direct result of engagement with that sport. So there's my hate. How have I resolved those two? I have not. I love to watch football. I love our Seahawks, to answer your question. And I sometimes, when I take a look at some of those injuries, I think to myself, they're going to be paying for this, these young men are, 20 years later, and they don't even know it yet. Well, and, and the reason why I asked that, John, and that's a great, yep. you, you give a great review of, of, the, of the dichotomy of that is, you know, I was a, I was a very competitive rugby player. I played at the, uh, the highest level in the States, yep. and I've had some, some a uh, couple of serious concussions myself. Uh, yep. And the, my, so this is an area that's, that's a, a, you know, actually very you know, important interest to me. And the one thing I've observed just anecdotally from a distance is when you see guys retire from the NFL, the yeah. ones who stay active, whether they're on TV as a sportscaster, whether, and, and usually if they're on TV, they're staying in shape because they're going to be on camera. So they probably exercise quite a bit. And I'm thinking of uh, Mark Schlereth. He's a, he was a former lineman for Denver and for Washington. Uh, and Mark Schlereth is now in his late fifties. And yeah. the guy is fit as a freaking ox. But he's also <laughs> mentally sharp as a tack. Sure. And so that provides, in my mind, in my just very amateur point of view, that provides a good, you know, kind of anecdotal evidence that if people do have that sort of brain trauma, that be exercising, staying engaged really will, can help maybe not necessarily heal everything in the brain, yeah. but help sort of ameliorate some of the, some of the trauma they may, they may experience. Whereas on the other hand, you hear about those players that leave the NFL and then experience depression and, and have, you know, have, um, substance abuse issues. And so I think there's a very evidence-based, you know, kind of a very observational case data. You have observational data there. It just goes to show, I think, to make the argument, and the reason why I ask that is that if you stay engaged, if you exercise, if you, if you have these conversations with people, 
Yeah. Can it help heal the brain? Can it? I mean, it's showing that if you watch somebody like Schlereth or watch some of these older players, they're still Steve very Young active on TV. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Steve Young is a good example. Yeah. Is another great example. Grade three concussions. You're exactly. Right yeah. Yeah. And because he's active, he's active. Number one, it's obviously exercises, but number two, he's still engaged with people in conversation. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of see that. Would that be one area where you can kind of like see that the difference in that? Yeah. Well, I'd love to be able to say yes. And I can't. Yeah. Because we don't know. Yeah. And that's the, uh, with all behaviors, the way, the way I usually talk about it in lectures that I say that they, all behaviors have a nature and a nurture component for sure. The, uh, 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 in fact, the way I'll sometimes couch it in lecture, the nurture component is the environmental stuff. The nature, which is what I mostly study, are the genes. Uh, um, I will sometimes say in lecture, okay, you guys, every human behavior, I got to ask you a question. Let's talk about boats. A boat has a starboard side and a port side. Tell me, class, which side of the boat is responsible for making the boat float? And usually there's a lot of laughter there, and then somebody raises their hand and says, Dr. Medina, that's the wrong question. And I'm going, that's right, because you need both. So even with CTE and the NFL and all those complex behaviors, there are genetic components to this as well as environmental components. And you've described the environmental component. One of the scariest um, uh, case studies I've seen is a, uh, uh, there is some evidence that suggests even a single concussion can, for some people, uh, result in a CTE event uh, years later, um, that they may be genetically susceptible to it. The vast majority of people, it's not known what that susceptibility looks like. So here's the counsel that I give. As soon as you are, if, 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 let's say if we were talking with the NFL, it's a little bit like what you said. As soon as you get out of the NFL, you get yourself a mental health evaluation and you see if you've got any tendencies. Then you go back to school and you learn something and you get a degree in something you never thought you'd get a degree in. One of the uh, clearest indications of people that are going to buffer against the negative effects uh, of the, the probability of getting uh, dementia or suffering the negative effects once it gets there is the amount of book learning that you did when you were small, when you were uh, when you were younger. The second thing I, I, I tell folks to do, besides going to school, you start to become friends with every one of your classmates if you can, hmm. because you need to get the socialization back. If you were in a, in, a, in a professional sport of some kind, you actually had a very narrow social range that you work with. Usually you're working with the same guys years and years. Nope. Now you need to go. And more importantly, you need to be working with people that are younger than you are or older than you are. The intergenerational component of the social environment is really, really good for the brain. And then thirdly and finally, they need to start focusing on aerobic workouts as much as they possibly can. The reason why I'm, I'm saying aerobic, it, strengthening is great. But aerobic really has the strongest story with BDNF and VEGF and all that hippocampal stuff really does reside with cardio type of exercises. And they have to do that the rest of their life and do the strengthening work only insofar as they can get rid of the arthritis. So I'm agreeing with you. The nurture side of it, since we don't know who's got the genetic susceptibility and who doesn't, it's better to, to increase your odds by doing things that, by God, are healthy for you to do anyway. There's nothing like learning, Pete. I mean, geez, uh, teaching is some of the most fun things I do. There's nothing like socializing with good people that you can spend a lot of time with and decenter yourselves over. That's a way to buffer yourself against it. Well, and, and I appreciate, yeah, I really appreciate that that insight into it. And it was funny, and I'm just going to take a pause. I'm going to wrap it up here real quick. Huh. But 
one of the things, John, I love about your answer, and I want to call this out for listeners, is that here you are, you're a professor in molecular biology, and you're saying you don't know. Because yeah. I always point out, especially in fitness, the more definitive somebody is in their answer, the less they know. And when I speak with somebody who's a PhD, when I speak with people, when I speak with PhD researchers, and these are people who study this area for a living, yeah. their first answer is, "We don't know," but here's what the evidence shows us. Right. And so I just want—I just want to be. There's a consistency there in your answer, in the fact that you're 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 consistent, in saying, "Look, here's what we've seen, but we don't have the clear evidence." I just want to call that out for listeners that. The more somebody says definitively gives you an answer about fitness, the less they should pay attention to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do research for a living for even a small little while, it can be very humiliating to, re- to discover how little we don't know about most things. <laughs> and I just, I just, but I want to, you know, now switching gears to, to start wrapping this up, sure. what role does nutrition play? Because obviously, you know, everybody in fitness, you know, okay, fitness and nutrition. And I'm one of these guys where I don't go deep dive on nutrition. I always try no. to tell clients and try to tell people is, be a B student, be a, be a B student with nutrition, meaning, you know, you should eat, you know, you shouldn't eat and try to eat what you should eat 85 to 90% of the time, be a good B student, you know, <laughs> but how can nutrition support brain health? Are there, are there things that we could be eating that there's some evidence to show that could help, you know, promote our, you know, the ability of our brain to function as we age? The real answer is no, we actually don't know. And there's been enough spurious work out there that, I mean, the, the health food stores are filled with things that, with little imprimaturs on them from the FDA saying the FDA has not evaluated this claim. But insofar as the, the literature trends, there are two uh, uh, important trends. And the reason why I say that, Pete, not to uh, uh, overemphasize the fact that we don't know, nutrition research responsible stuff where you're doing randomized blinded trials with single independent variable experiments are extremely expensive to do. And nutrition research is woefully underfunded. Mm-hmm. So until we get a clearer view, there are two things you can say. One of them is Mike Pollan's great quote, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. <laughs> Yeah, and that's but I thought that was some of the fascinating stuff in aging well. And this is an area of study that's really kind of I think new, and that's yeah. intermittent fasting and the, the sure. severe caloric restriction sure. and some of the effect that's having on us. I mean, again, we don't have enough evidence there to give really specific guidelines, yeah. but I think there's there's some pretty interesting stuff coming out from the you know kind of going through periods of stress from diet that really right. is should should at least people pay attention to going forward. Now, well, one of the things that you have to have a real caution with is the intermittent fasting, particularly in older populations. Yeah. To get where the data are, you have to go mostly with animal work because it's only been sort of done. It's been a little done with humans, but mostly with animals. But if you did the severe calorie restriction to replicate the animal stuff in a human, you'd probably kill a lot of elderly populations. So you have to be really careful with the calorie restriction with humans. Yeah. But there is something you can say. My grump factor, that's what I call it. Hopefully, I'm a nice guy, Pete, but I'm a pretty grumpy scientist. Uh, there's a, there's a lot of things you can't say. And half of brain rules was, was knocking off mythologies like you only use 10% of your brain or that there's this left brain, right brain personality, all these other myths that are out there. Nutrition was like that too until about 10 years ago where I had I was taken out to the woodshed with some really good data. And it has to do with the Predomid diet, particularly the Mediterranean diet, which I talk mm. about in the book Brain Rules for Aging Well. To date, it's still the only dietary protocol that has undergone the type of rigor necessary to ask and then answer the question, should I eat this to keep my brain healthy? The answer for the Mediterranean diet is, yeah, you probably should. 
In fact, there's a version of this called the MIND diet, which has gone to even more rigor, done, I think, at the University of Illinois, um, where it is essentially lots of fruits, lots of veggies, lots of nuts. If it's going to be meat, you need to have it be fish or white meat. And if you have to have oil, it has to be olive. Whole grains and, and legumes, all those things are in there. Things that are eaten around the northern and southern Mediterranean, hence it's called, hence it's... Um, Name the Mediterranean diet. That has been shown to change memory, for example, short-term memory, what we call working memory. And that's because it's part of a general suite of changes in that thing we've been talking about all hour, Pete, executive function. You do a Mediterranean diet and you can actually show changes in executive function. And it is directly related to the brain. It isn't that your heart is getting better because you're eating better. There are specific direct effects on the brain. Now it's interesting. You're talking Mediterranean diet, and I, I immediately I'm thinking back to our earlier the earlier component of the conversation about socialization. Sure. Because when you look at the the Mediterranean lifestyle, yeah. it's a huge. I mean, you kind of write this about this a little bit too. Is it's a huge family aspect, and, and it goes back to that people that have tighter family bonds, tighter social bonds, right. live well. So I think when people right. first started kind of benchmarking, you know, the Mediterranean diet. They didn't yeah. realize all the different components that went in that. I mean, I think that just, sure. as you say that, that's kind of where my mind went with it. Well, you've had to segregate them out, which they've done over the years. Yeah. There is something that I also talk in the book called the blue zones, yes. which is not segregating out the various components, but saying it's multifactorial. If we take a look just at the socialization, it isn't just that they have more friends. They're often in tight uh, uh, villages that, and they stay together for a while. It's that they have family interactions, which is powerfully intergenerational. So the generations are always talking to each other. Something that you can show in the laboratory is really good for brain health. So is it socialization? Is it uh, uh, olive oil? Or is it the fact that it's intergenerational? A lot of those things are still being worked out. Like I said, a lot of this is woefully underfunded, even for the stuff where, where they've actually had a hit, where you'd expect that would trigger a fair amount of funding. Instead, we don't see it nearly as, as, as rigorous as, as it could be. And that's and see, I think that's the fascinating. And again, we can discuss this for, for quite a while. But to wrap this up, the last thing I want to ask about is sure. sleep. Is like what role does and this is an area that's been getting so much more study, John, in the last few sure. years. I sure. think for and provide a lot of we're, we're learning a lot more insights about sleep than we ever had before. But okay. what role does sleep play in in terms of promoting brain health? Oh my gosh, we now know why you need to sleep. It's we didn't know for the longest time, but you need to sleep for two reasons. Number one, you don't need to sleep for energy restoration. You do the bioenergetics curves, and there's only a couple of places at night where you're actually balancing in favor of saving up energy. Uh, what we now know is that when you go to sleep, you start replaying all the things you you learned the day during night. It's called offline processing, and you and you just repeat that stuff over and over again. So you need to sleep so you can learn. The second thing that also is also clear is that little con when you go to sleep at specific stages of sleep, little confection uh, uh, currents uh, filled with fluid start uh, becoming active all throughout your brain, acting like a sewage cleansing operation and pushing a lot of toxic uh, material that you've generated the whole day because you've been thinking the whole day. I'm thinking reactive oxygen species and free radicals and whatnot, and pushing those into the cerebral spinal fluid where you eventually, where they're extracted from the brain. So you need to sleep, not just so that you can learn, you need to sleep so that you can flush out the system. So sleep turns out to be extraordinarily important to brain health, but for reasons we had no idea we're going to be as specific as that story is. 
Yeah. And that's just, that's an area where, you know, I just, the more I learn about it, the more fascinated I am and it, it you know, more, <laughs> the more it makes me want to sleep. So, oh, yeah. It, it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really does because we see the benefits of it. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. learning how to train and, and there are whole sleep scientists out there, right? There's actually a new, oh, sure. there, there's a whole association of, of sleep professionals now, but it, it's amazing how the, these, these avenues and these, these fields of study pop up. So to wrap this up, we've, we've talked about learning. You've talked about constant learning. You've mm-hmm. talked about exercise, social experiences. Is there, is there one or two other things you want to mention uh, about just like what we can do or how, what we can add to our life to really kind of enhance our cognitive development? And for the rest well, of the information, people don't have to pick up a copy of the book. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah, I'll say one thing. You need to be curious. If you have not been curious for a while because you have been uh, uh, weighted down with the cares of the world, where you haven't opened a book for a period of time, or you haven't seen a new idea that might just thrill you, you need to re-inaugurate that. Re-inaugurating people's curiosity, and by the way, I have no idea what curiosity is, yet it drives everything I do. It's so healthy in so many ways that I will leave with that, Pete. I will just say, Mm. stay curious. Be curious about your brain. Be curious about your body. Be curious about the things that you're going to need to do to keep both brain and body healthy as you tragic through, uh, have a trajectory through the aging process. Wow, that's and and really, I mean it. I mean, I to go back to what I said in the beginning, John. I after I read, I read Brain Rolls, I got it. You know, for aging well, I got it. I got my parents each a copy because I'm like, <laughs> look, guys, you're they're in their seventies. I'm like, and they yeah. keep asking me like, what can they be doing? And I'm like, sure. just just sure. read this. Go ahead and. <laughs> and go for it. Where's the best place? I mean, because I know you're a small publisher, and does your publisher have a website where they can get that information, where they can go to to pick up your book? And and as I was looking at your website, I think you sell excerpts of the book, don't you? Uh, I'm not sure that that would have to be the publisher. The publisher, it's a small publishing company in Seattle, but it has a national reach. He works with Perseus Distribution. The uh, um, uh, you can get it at Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble. They they all three titles are still active: Brain Rules, Brain Rules for Baby, and Brain Rules for Aging Well. So yeah, any any place you normally get it these days in viral land, COVID nineteen land, probably on Amazon's your best bet. <laughs> and and just for and it will really, just for listeners, I, I didn't even ask you anything about Brain Rules for Babies, but I read that when you know um, when my first daughter was born, and just really I'm there. My daughters are in elementary school. I have two of them, and uh-huh. I just really been that that book was also like a like an instruction book in, in her. Early, early years. So uh, thank you for your work on that. And I really appreciate all the work that you're doing, John. So thank you for your time today. I really, really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you and to share your work with my listeners. Oh, Pete, well, thank you again for the invitation. It was delightful to chat. As you can see, I mean, that was, I don't know about you. I learned a lot from that conversation, especially listening to it again, editing this and putting this podcast together. Now, as conversational as he is, that's exactly how he writes the books. So don't be intimidated. It can be very, you know, learning about the brain, you know, you always have that thing. What are you, a brain surgeon? Well, yeah, there's a lot to learn about the brain. But if you pick up one of of Dr. Medina's books, it's very easy to understand. You know, if a guy like me can read all three of them and and come up with some information, you can easily pick up one of them. I'd, I'd highly recommend either Brain Rules or Brain Rules for Aging Well. Both are extremely well written. Now, if you're a parent, if you are expecting you to be a parent sometime soon, I highly recommend picking up Brain Rules for Babies. I read that book and reread it with both my kids. And, you know, look, all parents love their kids. We know that. But, you know, I've I've put the stuff in a play that I read in his books, and I've been amazed at watching my kids develop. And now I'm going to give a lot of that credit, most of that credit to their mother. Their mother does a fabulous job with with them. And and just I'm amazed at just how well my kids are developing 
And part of it is the information I've used from, from Dr. Medina, from reading through his books. If you want to support the podcast, pick up one of the workout programs I have for sale down below. Eight-week kettlebell conditioning, eight-week dumbbell strength training, and eight-week functional core training. Right now, if you use code AAF2020, that's AAF2020, you'll save 60%. Normally, the programs are going to be priced at just under $50, but right now, you'll pay just under $20 for each eight-week program. Not only will you get fit, not only will you get in great shape, but you'll help slow down the aging process while supporting the podcast. Because as I mentioned, I am not putting this behind a paywall and I'm not taking outside advertiser dollars. I want this to be a user-supported podcast and I'm going to give you as much information as you can use to learn how to use exercise to slow down the aging process. You can also pick up a copy of my book, Smarter Workouts, The Science of Exercise Made Simple. I've been teaching personal trainers for almost 20 years and in Smarter Workouts, I give you all the science you need to know to get the most out of your exercise programs. Not only to look good, but to enhance your quality of life. And finally, if you want more information, you don't want to buy the book, that's fine. Go to my website, PeteMcCallFitness.com. Go to PeteMcCallFitness.com. Sign up for my mailing list. I'll send you a chapter from Smarter Workouts so you can try it before you buy it, along with a workout that you can do at home using just your body weight. So there's all the information I'm trying to put out there. Again, I'm here to try to be a resource for you to learn how to use exercise the right way. I'm not trying to sell you a bunch of snake oil. I'm not trying to sell you a bunch of supplements and protein. I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Anything I'm going to try to promote to you is research-based, evidence-based. It's the best way of applying the science of exercise to enhance the quality of life. So as always, thanks for stopping by. I look forward to having you join me for future episodes of All About Fitness.